Look, I've written so many papers about infrastructure, it's not even funny. I mean, you and I, we, we could talk about this for hours. We, we need like five, $10 trillion. We need true infrastructure spending. Danielle, welcome to uh, On The Margin. So great to have you back on another Blockwork show. It's great to be back. Thanks, thanks, thanks for having me again. Yeah, of course. I'm super excited to, to chat with you today. There's so much interesting ground to cover, uh, but I actually kind of wanted to start with something super basic, um, which is the Fed. Uh, and we talked to a lot of people on this show about the Fed. A lot of people have very strong opinions about the Fed. Not that many people have actually worked um, at the Federal Reserve. So before we kind of get into it, can you just give us a quick background on your history in financial markets and, and your time that you spent with uh, the Dallas Fed? Uh, sure. So um, kind of a roundabout way that I arrived uh, in that I came from Wall Street. I came from New York. I was really on, on the front lines of seeing the dot-com bubble inflate and kind of the role that the Federal Reserve played in feeding speculators. And th that was something that I saw early on in my career. And when I joined the Dallas Fed, I had left New York. I had, I had signed a non-compete, left the industry, what have you. And by then I was fairly cognizant of the next bubble and the influence the Federal Reserve's policies had had on housing and encouraging people to buy more than they could afford to take on more risk, whether it was in the credit markets or in residential real estate or what have you. Uh, and then being inside the Fed was pretty amazing. Um, you know, I, I came in with my eyes wide open. I was prepared to be reverent of the institution. A lot of people are very much still kind of in awe of, oh gosh, they, they absolutely must know what they're doing. And it didn't take me too long to find out that they were actually throwing spaghetti up against the wall and seeing what would stick. And that was kind of how, that was kind of how monetary policy was made, which was really bizarre. And a lot of the people there, surprisingly enough, didn't understand uh, a term that they use, a term economists use, which is the transmission mechanism and how monetary policy that's made within the halls of the Federal Reserve, how that translates into not just interest rates and the level that, that, that at which the Fed sets interest rates, but also how it percolates through into how much you borrow and how you invest and how much you save. And so these are very real tangential, you, you can hold on to them when it comes to financial literacy and the financial decisions that really affect the rest of your life. Yeah. I think it might even just be helpful to do even a really basic uh, setting of terms here. Um, you know, the, uh, the Federal Reserve is about a hundred year old institution. Mm -hmm. um, throughout that time period, its mandate has actually changed uh, quite a bit, right? As it's seen, you know, as it's been under the stewardship of, of various different governors. Um, so it would be great if you could, you know, talk a little bit about how, what is the current mandate of the Federal Reserve and how has that changed since its inception? So um, the long story short is J.P. Morgan himself, the man, knew that he was going to die at some point. And in the great panic of 1907, when he had to bring all of Wall Street's titans together in his parlor and said, nobody leaves this room until we resolve this crisis, that was a point at which he said, you know what, I'm not going to be around forever. We can't do this forever. We're no longer a third world country. The Bank of England's been around forever. It's time for there to be a central bank of the United States. We've grown up as an economy. So when the central bank was initially born in 1913, the idea was to safeguard the buying power of the U.S. dollar, minimize inflation, mm -hmm. and in the event of massive financial disruption, to be the lender of last resort. And as the years evolved, the Fed was increasingly called upon um, to take a more uh, a, a, a more proactive role in the markets, depending on who was in the White House. And a lot of this happened in the background. Uh, LBJ was one of the most 
uh, active presidents when it came to, to really strong arming the Fed. And other presidents that have succeeded uh, LBJ have been similar, but much less public than Donald Trump was. Um, mm. What happened, the, the next big turn was in 1977, and the misery index was a thing at the time. That's when inflation was going up at the same time that the unemployment rate was going up, stagflation. It's kind of everybody's worst nightmare. And that was when the second employment mandate was added into the Federal Reserve Act. The Federal Reserve Act was right. reopened. And if, if you think about minimizing inflation and maximizing uh, employment, they're inherently contradictory. And that was when uh, that was when things started to really go awry at the Fed. The, the, the private market, at least in a capitalist democratic society, as we're supposed to be, the private market should determine, except during times of, of, of deep recession, what the labor market construct is. That should not be the job of the Federal Reserve because the, the longer you hold interest rates at artificially low levels, to try and bring that last worker in off the sideline to satisfy both your mandates, the greater the chances that you're going to be fomenting financial instability, which is indeed what we've seen since mm -hmm. 1987 and then in 2000 and then in 2000, 2008, the great financial crisis and now. Mm -hmm. And while there's never been anything put in writing, the understood mandate since the Greenspan put was born in 1987 was that the Fed would increasingly step into backstop investors. And that has really perverted a lot of incentives and it has given the Fed at the same time extraordinary power and control. Any word that they say can be construed as, oh my gosh, they're gonna tighten up or oh my gosh, they're gonna inject more liquidity into the system. So the Fed is an unelected group of officials that I perceive as being as strong as the fourth branch of the United States government. Yeah. And can you talk about, I mean, one, one thing that gets a uh, term that gets bandied around a lot is this idea of moral hazard, right? And, and if you ask different people, it got created at different times, right? Some people point to the bailout of long-term capital uh, back in the 90s. Um, you might say, you know, I've heard you reference in, in past interviews, um, it was actually when Greenspan took power and after Black Market, uh, Black Monday, the crash in 1987, uh, he put out this pretty interesting statement. So can you, can you talk a little about what is the moral hazard that everyone's so worried about and, and when did it actually get kind of created? So, so Paul Volcker, to his dying day, said that he really didn't give a flip about Wall Street, and he was pretty serious about it, and he didn't. And I met him later in life, and he, he still didn't to that day, and that was smack in the middle of New York City when we were at a dinner party together. Alan Greenspan was much different. Uh, he had a briefing of overnight activity in the, in the equity markets overseas. He wanted to know what the trading day was going to look like in the United States. He cared about the equity markets. So when he landed in, in Dallas, Texas on October the 19th, 1987, and was informed that while he was in the air, that the S&P 500 had dropped 23 plus percent, the biggest move in, in the history of the market since then, Not, nothing is, we've never seen anything since then. He hopped it back, hot-footed it back to Washington, D.C., released a statement that you reference uh, that said the, the Federal Reserve and its capacity as, as the nation's central bank will ensure the financial stability, uh, the, the stability of the banking and financial systems. That we don't understand because we're all, you know, it's 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Here comes the Fed statement. This was in an era when there was no Fed statement. This was an era when there was no Fed speak. There were no Fed speakers. Um, there was no social media and very little communication between the Fed and the bond market and the traders in the bond market. So what Alan Greenspan did in the days and months and weeks that followed that crash in 1987, October, is that he allowed 
individuals in the New York market's desk at the New York Fed to inform traders on bond trading desks across mm -hmm. Wall Street of the Fed's intentions to inject liquidity into the financial system prior to that taking place. Now that is your definition of moral hazard because then your bond, your bond traders are able to front run the Fed, get in front of Fed actions and profit from it. And as time went by 1994, we saw Orange County meltdown. We saw a tequila crisis in Mexico with the peso that was 94, 1998 was a little bit more um, coordinated. Alan Greenspan brought together 14 men in a room, said you must write a check to bail out this long-term capital management. You, 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 you absolutely must do this. Two banks famously said no, or I should say infamously, since they're not, they're now gone. Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers were the two that refused to write the check, but otherwise the other 12 agreed to bail out long-term capital management. And that was when a lot of people say, well, that was when the actual Rubicon was absolutely crossed. But in truth, when you start to let traders know prior to Fed injections of liquidity into the system, you've already let the fox into the hen house. So I date it back to 1987. Things have just gotten worse progressively as time has gone on. And if you think back to actually the only uh, Fed chairman who had a longer tenure than um, Alan Greenspan, who was um, William McChesney. You're here. All right. Great. Um, so he had this great saying, right, which was um, it's the Fed's job to take away the punch bowl raise the party's getting started. Um, what a great seems, man. What a great man, right? The man gets it. But it seems like somewhere along the way, we've forgotten about that. Um, and I guess my question to you is when you look around at markets today, it seems like something is not functioning properly, right? To, to put it mildly, and we can get into what some of those symptoms are. But how much do you lay that at the feet of this ultra uh, accommodative monetary policy that we've had over the past oh, I, years? Look, investors have been trained. And at this point, investors are hypnotized. And they know their investors don't understand a world that predates the Fed put. They, mm. they can't even they, they don't understand what price discovery means. It, it's I mean, it's it's gone the way of the dodo bird. I mean, you, you tell people that there's the risk that interest rates are going to go up. And they're like, yeah, and the Fed's going to let the stock market go too. I'll believe it when I see it because nobody believes these things because we have been brainwashed as a factor of time. And it really has introduced such levels of distortion. Um, you know, when McChesney Martin held his ground, LBJ famously threw him up against a wall and said, boys are dying right. in Vietnam. It's, it's, it's time to loosen policy. And then he booted him out the door and brought in Arthur Burns. And you ended up with all manner of, uh, of, of things that went wrong. The wheels fell off after that. But it is the Fed's job to take away the punch bowl just as the party's getting started and we we saw a glimpse of that in jay powell's first year in office and bless him uh you know i i i had tremendous respect for him he had every intention of normalizing interest rates of getting the fed funds rate to three percent uh, Jay Powell had every intention of reducing the size of the Fed's balance sheet to $2 trillion and to allowing markets and, and the pricing mechanism to, to resume their natural place. But by the time he got there, he realized that the monster that had been created by trying to repair the, the, the damage from the housing bubble bursting, that creating more debt by creating an even bigger credit bubble in the corporate bond market was something that one man simply could not combat. So he had to back off. He tried, but he's the first person who tried since Volcker was in office and failed. Yeah. 
And, you know, Volcker famously said, right, I think he said before he passed away that uh, it'd be completely impossible, right, if we ever enter an inflationary environment again to do what he did and hike interest rates, right? Um, <laughs> how, how could you? Uh, you know, that's such an understatement. We, every single wheel, the axle would fall off um, because we are – I saw a really interesting chart a few days ago. And we, we, we applaud U.S. households because they've cleaned up their balance sheets in the wake of the great financial crisis. And it, it just showed all the major economies in the world, and it, developed, it, it bundled up developed markets together, emerging markets together, China, and I think Japan. But even after all of this cleaning up of the balance sheet, the United States household still is the most leveraged on planet Earth. I mean, you can say Norway, Australia, Canada, you can get a few little countries here and there, but generally speaking, we've still got tremendous amounts of household debt. Corporates are, they're, they're leveraged out the wazoo. Yeah. And then the commercial real estate market is just a ticking time bomb that we've started to see things go wrong because the Fed wasn't able to directly bail it out mm. post COVID. And then residential real estate is just a joke. I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, I mean, it's they're going to come up with a new reality show in a few days. I, before before this airs, it's going to be how to win a bidding war, and it's going to be like you know AMC or so. I promise you, because there's all kinds of how-to seminars on the web right now on how to win a bidding war. Yeah, and and I think just what we're looking at right now is it's this is the this is the effect right of when you have ultra easy money, super cheap money, uh, because when you lower interest rates you're essentially destroying the time value of money. And I think that explains, right, a lot of different things that we're seeing. That's why we're seeing these crazy valuations, right, in these hyper-growthy, super-frothy stocks, right? Because you can say, hey, I'm going to do, you know, $10 billion of revenue in 10 years. And if there's no time value of money, you should just get that value. You should get that valuation right now. Immediately. Um, yeah, yeah. Immediately, right? Um, so, so what are some of the effects, right, that you pay a lot of attention to? I know we talked about before here, just misallocation of capital, you know, the growth or, you know, acceleration of more and more uh, zombie companies. What are some of the more important effects that you pay attention to? Well, so, I mean, you can't get past the effect of zombie companies because right. zombie companies affects future generations of Americans. I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm not exaggerating. It's very hard to allow employee job creating entities to be born into an environment when you have all of the ICU beds full of dead companies on, on that are that are hooked up to life support hmm. absolutely cannot make room for companies that are going to that are going to be the next generation of innovators yep and you know i mean it, it's it's perverse but china right now is is finally growing up and becoming you know a crazy communist capitalist regime but they're realizing that the next step in their financial evolution is allowing defaults to occur. And the United States is going in the opposite direction. Absolutely. And you know, the last thing that I want to touch on here is growth, right? So it seems like growth is really at the heart of this. And I think if you talk to the Fed, um, you know, what they would say is we're not trying to inflate away the debt, quote unquote, we're trying to grow our way out of this. But one of the big problems with the current situation that we have in terms of debt is if you talk to Lacey Hunt, Right, debt is deflationary. It's not inflationary. Just read my mind. I just, I just had Lacey's multiplier go through my mind. You're only, <laughs> you're only getting thirty-eight cents on the dollar. I mean, I, I, I visited with him for more than an hour recently. You're only getting thirty-eight cents on the dollar for every dollar of debt created. That is about half of what it was back in 1980, 81 or so. So you, the law of diminishing returns is, is just it, it's staring Uncle Sam in the face. For every yeah. trillion dollars of debt that's taken on, you're just not getting that big of a bang for your buck. 
Yeah. You know, there was this recent interview um, that Grant Williams did uh, with Paul Singer, right, who's the chief, uh, the CEO and founder over at uh, Elliott. And he asked this question, you know, which is, you know, all these people criticize the Fed, right? And these, these arguments are pretty well known in public at this point. And he's like, do you think they just don't understand or is there some bigger question? And he said, I just don't think they understand. And to me, you know, I'm just, that just smacked me over the face because it's like, that can't, that can't be possible. You know, you've, you've worked inside the Federal Reserve. Like, how, what's your best guess in terms of what's the thinking? How does an organization, um, how are they thinking about the problems that are facing them today, which seem huge? Well, I would, I would have to say that Mr. Singer's right about the vast majority, the mm -hmm. vast majority of the 790 some odd PhDs wandering around those 12 districts and Washington, D.C. Um, Paul is not right, however, about 1J Powell who in October 2012 uh, raised his hand. He'd only been on the FOMC, excuse me, he'd only, he'd only been on the Federal Reserve Board and a, and a voting member of the FOMC since June of 2012, so very much a rookie. And But he said at the time, if one day we are to try and extricate ourselves from this quantitative easing, mm -hmm. there's a good chance that we're going to end up inflating a, a duration bubble across the entire credit spectrum. Now mm -hmm. that's a matter of record. And you're not somebody who doesn't understand financial markets if you can string those words together with his private equity background, his his deep ties into the hedge fund community, his, his implicit understanding of financial markets and banking, he gets it. Mm. And yet he has to pretend like he doesn't. And that's even scarier than a bunch of clueless academics wandering around with sweaters, with, with leather elbow patches. It's even right. scarier that somebody's in a position of power and understands that the Fed is in a, is completely entrapped. Right. It, it does seem like it does seem like they're in this really really difficult spot, right? Because on the one hand, you have um, I think what we're kind of seeing right now, which is inflation in terms of financial assets, and you also see rampant speculation, which is obviously a huge negative. Uh, but on the other hand, right, if they were to be uh, less accommodative and raise rates, you would see massive deflation, right? So it just seems like a lose-lose. You know, what do you do if you're Jay Powell in this situation? There's, uh, look, it, it, I tell you, there was an opportunity to do something. Right. There was a huge, I mean, COVID was, look, they knew that they needed QE. Mm. Uh, the not QE that was introduced, I mean, wh whatever, you, you, you know how it happened. You know how the dominoes lined up. October, uh, you know, February 2018, you have Volmageddon's. So you're like, okay, there's a big old risk parity trade out here in left field. It's problematic. FYI, note to self. And then October of that year, General Electric's debt gets downgraded and all of a sudden here goes the daisy chain and you have, you have no issuance of high yield debt for 41 days. You have the bloodbath on Christmas Eve. You have Powell stare himself in the mirror and say, oh my God, one man's not big enough for this. Powell pivot comes along January the 4th. By the end of that year, 2019, the Fed was pumping not QE into the system to try and alleviate stress in the overnight uh, lending market, but it wasn't enough. And so by the end of 2019, and because of what happened with the corporate credit meltdown a year mm. prior, the Fed had its black swan game plan in hand. They mm. knew if anything happened, what to do. And that's why everybody was like, it's the second coming of Christ. Oh my gosh, look what they did on March the 23rd. And I'm like, because it was ready to go. They had the DEFCON 1. They knew that they could not let 
let anything happen in the ticking time bomb known as the corporate credit market, which is why they came in and one-upped Mario Draghi and said, I'll see your stocks, try junk bonds. And that's why they had to bail the whole thing out. But they needed COVID. Hmm. And that's what people don't understand. They needed COVID, but they destroyed an opportunity. Yeah. What, the, what the system needed was reserves. What the system was saying was, I don't need your 12 month and less paper to alleviate technical difficulties in the overnight repo market. I want actual reserves pumped back into the system. JP Morgan, some of the biggest banks are saying no. They're not providing the liquidity that's needed. They needed actual reserves, true quantitative easing. The Fed could have come in and just did that. They could have come in and said, we're doing unlimited QE, which in, mm. in and of itself is extraordinary. There were days that were there was $100 billion in QE in one day at the very beginning of the, the crisis alleviation. They didn't mm. have to save the corporate bond market the way they did. They didn't have to grandfather in triple B credits. They could have let some of the zombies restructure. Mm. And that would have laid the groundwork for a much less entrapped Federal Reserve today, but they chose not to take that opportunity. And it would have been ugly, but it wouldn't have been Armageddon. He would have stopped the bloodletting by pumping up the, the banking system with reserves. He didn't have to save the corporate bond market, and yet he chose to do so, which made him look like a crony who was trying to satisfy his private equity buddies, who didn't want to all have their asses handed to him. But that's life if you're billionaires taking risk. That's, you know, you, there should be consequences that to me, if Jay Powell looks back on his legacy, is it's going to be the, the biggest black stain on, on him is that he didn't take the zombies out of the system when the opportunity was staring him in the face. He could have still saved the global financial system mm. and still let the zombies get taken off life support, and he chose not to. Well, you know, that's what, you know, supposedly there's there's independence for the Fed, right? But there are also no atheists in foxholes. And supposedly they're beholden to Congress, but guess what? When people are in a panic, they will vote for emergency measures. And just to point this out, so we had Grant Williams on here a couple weeks ago, and he was saying, how easy do you suppose it would have been to convince 7 billion people on this planet to stay inside their homes? You would have said that's impossible. And look at what's happened with COVID. So just pointing out that in extreme situations, you would not believe what people will do or vote to do. And changing the, the charter of the Federal Reserve doesn't sound that extreme. And arguably they already did it when they backed up the corporate bond market. Look, I'm gonna walk you through something that's going on in the here and now. Mm. Hotels can get front, front lobby clerks. Mm. Hotels cannot get housekeepers. Mm. McDonald's can get managers. McDonald's is paying $50 for starting workers just to show up for the interview. Mm. There are going to be mass there's going to be a mass lobbying effort, I promise I have a point, to not re-re-re-extend unemployment benefits come September the 6th, 2021. Mm. Hilton Corporation, McDonald's Corporate, there's going to be massive lobbying on the Hill saying, if you re-extend these unemployment benefits, we're starving for employees and we cannot get them. You've got to, you've got to unplug take them off, cut the cord, whatever you need to do. We have to have these low skilled workers back in the workforce. We know there's 15 million of them wandering around at least. That's not gonna make Janet Yellen happy. And what happens if Janet Yellen gets unhappy? She's very quiet, but she's got tremendous political sway 
And if something goes wrong and you take away the ability to have these emergency unemployment benefits permanently turned on, then her next solution as a UC Berkeley educated labor economist is going to be helicopter money. How do you do helicopter money? Lacey will tell you that you have to, you have to render the, the liabilities of the Fed to, as legal tender, CBDC, have, yeah. uh, have accounts directly at the Federal Reserve and hand people money directly, print it and give it to them directly. And you know what? That'll take care of your unemployment benefits and we'll have hyperinflation at the same time. So we can just all wander off in the, into the wild blue yonder. Yeah. You said something in another interview that just really caught my attention. You called central bank digital currencies the ultimate end game. And that's exactly how I see them too, because it allows the Fed to cross the Rubicon, right, of the zero bound. And it allows them to do two really interesting things, right? They can look at what China's doing with their DCEP. Their money expires. The money expires. It's right? like Ken Rogoff's greatest dream come true. Ever. It's yeah. nuts. And to me, it just, you're right. It really feels like the final nail in the coffin. It just exacerbates all of the problems. You're essentially disintermediating the system of commercial banking where supposed legal tender money is supposed to get created and you're bypassing that and, and making it the governance of the, the federal and reserve. what do big banks do without deposits? Why do they exist in the first place without deposits? But why do they need to exist if people are going to have accounts directly at the federal reserve? And that addresses inequality because people who are underbanked, I mean, there's all kinds of kumbaya going on, but it also lays the groundwork for the future of the global financial system and finding a way around the SWIFT system. And the Chinese are denying it six ways to Sunday. They're saying, this is only a domestic thing. We're just gonna play with you know, just Hong Kong, maybe a few other countries, but it really is only a domestic mechanism that we're using uh, to basically so that we can monitor. We're communists, we're good communists. We're trying to monitor what people spend and we're trying to force them to spend, but it's only domestic. And we're not trying to infiltrate the dollar and we're not trying to take it out. They're like, but in the future, it could certainly be used as, you know, as, as a, a means to support the next generation of the global financial system, dot, dot, dot. Right. And that to me is the big question. What happens for, do you, do you think that we're moving towards, a, not, not tomorrow, not even next year, but do you think we're eventually moving away from a monetary system that's built around the dollar or having the dollar at the center? Well, let me, let me play Socrates for just a second, um, because we know that the coronavirus expedited China's become the largest economy in the world from 2030 to 2028. Mm. And we know right now that they're going to play. I mean, Jenny Ellen's just given them a, a, a free pass and she's like, no, I'm not going to label you currency manipulator. And they're like, good, we've got, we've got some steel we want to dump onto your markets. So they're going to devalue the yuan. They're going to take back market share that they've lost since the beginning of the trade war with Trump. They're going to do all kinds of things. And, and right now, DC is going to look the other way. But if and when they decide that they have righted their ship and they've got domestic consumption growing again, they want the way they want it, and they don't have to force the industrialized sector to prop up GDP growth, and they can start to strengthen the one again, maybe that 2028 becomes 2026. So here's my Socratic moment. Is there dollar hegemony if China is the largest economy in the world? I don't think I don't think there can be. Look, look at what look at some of the pressures that companies like like what is Germany going to do, right? Who's their largest trading partner now? Thank you. Hmm? And and you have China that is that is basically saying we're going to forgive your debt to all of these countries that are being bailed out by the IMF, but they're like but you're going to owe us. So it's extremely 
subtle and quiet colonization, but it is nonetheless colonization. And the United States has to figure out, you know, where loyalties will lie and loyalties lie with economic ties, not because you've been allies since the beginning of time. I completely agree. And if you look at what China's been doing, so obviously their holdings of treasuries has been decreasing for the last seven or 10 years or something like that. But if you look at what they're doing with One Belt, One Road, they're essentially investing in commodities and infrastructure, right? They're kind of actually taking the U.S. playbook. Well, that's what I mean. But, 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 this is, but this is Great Britain and, and the way that they colonized the world. It's just that it used to be done with, with guns and, uh, and now it's done with debt. And it's done by building out countries' resources and by building out countries' infrastructure and by forging alliances and gigantic IOUs in the midst of a global pandemic when, when they cannot, you know, they need an IMF bailout. The last thing they can do is also pay back China. But the IOU won't, won't go anywhere. And they'll always be beholden to the Chinese who came in and, and made their third world country less third world. Let me, let me ask you something. Do you think that China wants the renminbi as the global reserve currency? And just to provide context for that question, you know, when you look at, so there are unquestionable benefits that have accrued to the U.S. as being the issuer of the reserve currency. However, there have also been a lot of negative externalities that have come from that fact as well. If you look at China versus the U.S. over the course of the last 30 or 40 years, since 1980, China has lifted 850 million people out of poverty. They have grown their economy exponentially. They've become a player on the world stage. Look at the United States right now. What have we done in the last 40 years? The stock market's gone up? I don't know. I think there, there's this really interesting analogy of, uh, you know, the exportation of dollars uh, as being a sort of financial Dutch disease, right? And the people involved in exporting those dollars, great, you got rich. But you know what we also did? We hollowed out our middle class. And that was the engine. Mm -hmm. That's what we did. So I mean, do you we think have, you know, it, it, Cornerstone Macro did, uh, they, they did a bit of math. They, they determined that $12.3 trillion between monetary and fiscal policy has been thrown into the U.S. economy. Mm. This this goes this this is uh, this is a, a I don't know how many times what World War One was, but I think World War One was thirty percent of GDP. This is fifty seven percent of GDP. Not one dollar has been to productive means. Hmm. China is blowing and going. You know, it looks like China between China and Taiwan, which you have to look at together. Unfortunately, it looks like they're going to have dominance of the semiconductor industry within a few years. The groundwork has been laid. China knows that one child policy has decimated the, the country demographically. So they're just going way out on ro robots and automation in order to make up for that. And $20.3 trillion later, and we haven't created a single job creation machine. We haven't even built the Hoover Dam all over again and done what FDR did with public-private. And China's got, you know, my favorite thing to fall back on is China's got 30 airports right now in some stage of construction or modernization, 30 airports. We've got like, LaGuardia's looking good. That Terminal B is looking pretty smoking hot. I mean, we're, we're doing so little, comparatively speaking, and yet we've spent so much. I know. What do you think about um, then this transition to more, like one of, the, one of the transitions I think that we're seeing right now is kind of central bank and monetary dominance to more actual fiscal spending. Right. So we are seeing some actual infrastructure plans proposed uh, from the Biden administration. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a good idea, bad idea? What do you think? 
look, I've written so many papers about infrastructure, it's not even funny. I mean, you and I, we could talk about this for hours, plural. Uh, we, we need like five, $10 trillion, big, big numbers, or half of what I just described to you that's done nothing. Mm-hmm. We need true infrastructure spending. And I'm not, I mean, there's whatever there is earmarked, 561 billion or so that's in the current 2.25 trillion, that's actual, actual true infrastructure. Uh, we need really, really, really big dollars yeah. that are that are truly going towards infrastructure spending. The same people who uh, who who were the architects of Obama's shovel-ready infrastructure plan that Obama himself admitted did a lot of nothing. They're the same exact individuals who are constructing this legislation. Mm. You know, we don't need the permitting process to last years, plural. We we need an FDR New Deal but a true FDR New Deal, where there's no unions involved, where there's truly private corporations on the other side, they're obligated to hire people, not just regurgitate the same workers, they're they're obligated to do things big at a profit, or else you're not gonna get to touch Uncle Sam's checkbook. And, but we need to be gigantic about it and bold about it. We need to, we need to force vocational training back into our high schools. We need to bring trades back. We need to, to, you know, make community college free. And I paid off my student debts. I did not say four-year college, but if you want to go pick up a skill after high school and you can't afford it, then you should be able to go get that skill and become employable in this country without burying yourself in in student debt. You wanna go to Harvard, pay. If you wanna get a trade, get a trade and then go be a productive member of society. Yeah, there's a psychological component I think here that doesn't necessarily show up in the numbers. When you're, you know, during the New Deal, right, a lot of those infrastructure projects like the Hoover Dam, you actually have people making stuff and there is a physical, tangible outcome, right? And people look at that and say, hey, this is, they get proud of that. And I think when you think about the brand of the United States, we've lost, we've lost, when, when you used to think about what are the words that are associated with the United States, small business, entrepreneurship, social mobility, we're, we're losing that. We're losing that as a brand. These ideals have been decimated. My most recent weekly, I did a deep dive into the GI Bill. Mm. Your average, your average boy in 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 combat in 1944 was 26 years old. Mm. That means that you're talk, we're talking about a male soldier. That means that when he was born, he was born into the Roaring Twenties, and then all of a sudden the world fell, fell apart when you're like 10, 11 years old. So you see the worst of the Great Depression, but you see people start to go back to work as part of the new deal. And then you go and you fight for your country and you're fighting for something that is true and real. And they introduced the GI bill because World War I veterans coming home got $50 and a bus ticket. And that was it. So there was a lot of destitution with World War I veterans and a lot of, rightly so, a lot of bitterness in this country. So the GI bill was constructed and barely passed and signed into law by FDR. And it had a very controversial provision providing for unemployment benefits. The veterans took up the offer on the four-year education through the GI Bill. They bought homes. They had 3.58 children on average during the baby boom. 20% of the unemployment funds were taken up. Most of the men said, I don't want your money. I want to take the opportunity and give back to my country. That's the American dream. Mm -hmm. And that's why what I published yesterday was the next GI Bill 
the next greatest generation, the next crop of Americans who are proud to be Americans and work for this country and not get paid more than they've ever been paid to do nothing. There's no dignity, no pride, no integrity, nothing. And you're, you're, you're proliferating a cycle of poverty that is difficult to escape. What do you think about this this kind of tr um, trend of reshoring, I guess? And you mentioned the semiconductor industry, right? Now you have companies that for the first time are actually, you know, I think one thing that hopefully the U.S. will wake up from the pandemic and think is, oh, my God, it took us months to get masks, right? Oh, yeah. oh my God. Uh, you know, a critical industry, you know, to our defense, semiconductors, we're not making any of that stuff in mm -hmm. the United States. You know, yeah. at what point does it become just a national security imperative? Again, what you're talking about is absolutely correct, but they're throwing pennies at it mm -hmm. instead of trillions. I mean, if you really want to make this work, get the private sector involved, make them make a profit, but give them the seed money that they actually need to make it happen so that we're never again beholden to our frenemies to get a damn mask into the country. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what I one of the things that I think about, like, to me, a lot of this, almost all of it comes down to the issue of economic inequality, right? You talk about uh, escape valves, right? So, you know, post-World War II, right, the Federal Reserve, there, there was yield curve control, right? We borrowed, uh, and essentially the, the outlet there was bondholders, right, uh, U.S. bondholders. Now, we don't really, I mean, we could keep doing that, but it seems like really the outlet uh, is actual political ramifications, right? And people just being so unhappy with their government. And I don't think enough people have fully accepted that at this point. I don't know what more you need to see. Uh, they don't, um, I think the issue here is that the economic dots aren't, aren't gone crossed. You're not um, connected, excuse me. People aren't, they're, they're associating income inequality with politics. Mm. They're not associating income inequality with totally. economics. And you have to, you have to bridge that gap intellectually, or you're going to stop with politics. And, you know, everybody's already talking about the midterm elections, which is, mm -hmm next November. So, I mean, that's kind of where we are as a country, as opposed to being solutions oriented. It looks like the Senate parliamentarian is going to allow the Biden administration to have three, three legislations in one calendar year via reconciliation. You want to have a really divided populace, have three massive pieces of legislation ran through Congress, straight down partisan lines. And then you're wondering why everybody's even more pissed off in 2022 with the midterms and you still haven't addressed any economic underlying hits. Gee, look, in the 1960s, we sent a man to the moon. You know what? It was the best. It was the heyday for STEM education in America because people were excited to see somebody walking on the damn moon. So they wanted to grow up and be engineers and they wanted to take math in school because they saw what it looked like. They saw what the other side was and they wanted to grow up and be an astronaut. And it was maybe it was only for a handful of people but you didn't have to have seminars talking about how we can improve STEM education in the United States. Show, don't tell. Show them. Yeah. Show them what the dream can look like when it comes true. And then you'll have grassroots. Get rid of the damn teachers' unions. I live in Texas. We've had our schools open the entire school year. I've had two kids there the whole time. Everything's been fine hunky-dory. And yet you've got teachers' unions who don't have kids' best interests at heart. There's some pretty de facto simple... Pat Toomey drew the line on on the Federal Reserve's credit facilities, because you know what? He believes in term limits and he said so. And he said, I'm out of here in 2022. I can actually legislate and do my job. So there's a constitution. There's a middle class with no voice that has a voice. You want to get things done in this country, put some stuff on the constitution, get an amendment going. It will happen. Yeah. 
Mainly because I'm going to become one of the voices, so. Yes, yeah, exactly. Honestly, maybe you found this also as a, you know, you're an entrepreneur, right? And there's this great saying, which is you create your own luck. And you create your own luck by just doing things and sticking around and taking opportunities. And you kind of meet, you know, maybe you'll try something and it won't work, but you meet this person and that ends up bringing this opportunity down the line. And, you know, in order to invent stuff, you got to make stuff. And when you don't make stuff, you're not inventing anything. Uh, and I think that's, that's one of the big problems that we've had. Yep. We need yeah. whatever next, the next generation of widgets is, we need to be making it, not China. And we gave up, we gave up the semiconductor building blocks. So we're, it, it, we're, we're just missing, we, we, these things should be wrote the way they're wrote in other parts of the world. And, and we've just, we've missed this bus. There's so much, there's so much political time and devotion and we've got to change this and we've got to change that. And then when it comes time to devote the actual funding and involve the private sector, it's not done. Yeah. Danielle, I know we only have you for a couple more minutes here, but what I want to actually end it on, I've got one more question for you and then I want you to talk a little bit about Quill um, and, and educate our viewers on that. But, you know, the big question right now that investors have to answer is inflation versus deflation. And this gets talked about a lot. Right. So I almost don't want to just ask a super basic question, but we've laid out some really powerful forces, I think, for deflation. Right. Which is this rising debt um, that's kind of dragging down the economy. But you're also starting to see fiscal spending. Right. Um, and, and actual and, you know, we talked about CBDCs is actually being a way to put make um, liabilities of central banks real legal tender. So you, what are your thoughts on inflation versus deflation? How should investors be preparing? So the. The especially because of the base from which we're starting, mm -hmm. the inflation scare that we're currently in is going to be scarier than anything we've seen in our careers. I mean, we have to remember that that the CPI hit three percent um, in 2011, and I mean, can you imagine a three percent CPI today? And we will probably no. see it in April or May. We will probably see a headline CPI somewhere in that vicinity because May of 2020 was a 0.1 percent year-over-year rate. So just mathematically base effects, blah, blah, blah. But there are serious supply chain disruptions. Uh, but, you know, I was listening to a Union Pacific interview earlier today. They've increased by 25% the number of drivers at the, at, at the ports, which is not one of their core businesses, so that they can expedite getting the, the cargo off these ships. Supply chain disruptions, solutions to supply chain disruptions. When it started years ago with, with a trade war, it might take a lot longer when you've got a pandemic thrown in there for good measure to undisrupt the supply chain, but it will happen. And yeah. China has built up capacity and China is prepared to fight for market share and get back what they lost in the Trump years by undercutting high priced US suppliers. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the supply chain. If you keep having talk about rising taxes, rising capital gains, you're going to take some of the air out of the financial markets and you're going to make people skittish as well. And that's in and of itself deflationary against this massive run up that we've seen in inflation. And you still have to acknowledge, I understand that labor inflation is there. But if you look at the most recent confidence numbers, 50% of Americans see unemployment as falling in the future. That is hugely inflationary, theoretically, for wages. 55% of CFOs queried at the same exact time say they're not raising wages. 
So you've got this inherent conflict between management and employees. I'll believe it when I see it, when we cross that Rubicon, but until then, I think we're in for the mother of all inflation scares. Mm. But again, to change the Federal Reserve Act, that requires quite a big emergency that we can't see right now. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if he's, we're recording this on um, the 22nd on Thursday, but Biden supposedly proposed uh, 40, 43%? Uh... 43% capital gains, yes. Not very popular. Not very popular, I can imagine, <laughs> uh, with certain folks. Um, all right, Danielle, you've been super generous with your time already. Um, you're doing something really interesting with Quill Intelligence, so I'm sure our viewers would be interested. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So uh, we always like to say hashtag research revolution. That's, that's the mantra that's driven us. We're coming up on our three-year anniversary. We're about to launch um, campaigns and what have you, and we're, 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 we've greatly expanded our institutional offering in a post-COVID world because we were all kind of stuck. So we just mm. got to work and took the opportunity. Um, so we've got the Daily Feather. It's something we publish every day. We've got the Weekly Quill, which is a deep dive that I write. I've got a tremendous team that's with me. And now we put out investable, actionable ideas every single week, every single day, every single trading day. Uh, so it is the most unbiased, unvarnished, independent research that exists. And, 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 and I've been told the best written out there. So please come to quillintelligence.com. Uh, reach out to me directly, follow me on Twitter, DM me on Twitter, do whatever you like, but I'd love to get you a sample of the research just so I can show, not tell. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure people have uh, heard it from you uh, themselves on this interview, incredibly sharp. Uh, I've seen a little bit of the research. It is really, really good. So definitely everyone who's listening, highly recommend you go check it out. Um, Danielle, this has been a ton of fun. I feel like we covered so much ground. <laughs> it was, this is great. We're amazingly um, efficient. We should super be Super efficient. <laughs> give us a medal. Just give us a medal. Um, awesome. Well, this has been really great. We'll have to do it again soon. I look forward to it. Take good care. Bye.